Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Today is April 8, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and with me today is Tom Lee. Tom is the managing partner and head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. Thanks for being here, Tom. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the current market. We'll talk about being long-term greedy, and we will end the episode with three current ideas. So let's get into the current market. Uh, the market is back in an uptrend. We got our market signal last week. We had a fall through day. And so what that's telling us is that we might have a chance here for an uptrend. In the end, let the market slowly pull you in. Let leading stocks start to move into new highs. Tom, what are your thoughts on the market? Uh, I, I think everything you've said makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you know this this full of surprises. I mean, again, I can't believe uh, this global pandemic and and the amount of damage it's been doing to people's health and also the psychology of investors. And as you know, it created, I think, really what looked like a free fall in assets. Um, yep. Stocks fell 23%. And I know that for our clients, it was a very difficult to just have any way to fundamentally calibrate what the stock market was doing to what they were seeing. So I think it, in that face of that, people just went on buyer strikes. And that's probably how we got to March 23rd. Since then, um, you know, you've seen... I think a shift towards buyers being in, in control because we had some really strong up days. And I think the data on the health crisis, while it's still really terrible, I'm not trying to say it's over, but it, you know, we can start to see the horizon of a peak and that's investors now start to put money to work. So I think there have been some key levels that I think from a technical perspective really mattered. And I think as we're reaching them, I think people are getting more confident. Yeah, so talk about one of those technical levels where the market is coming up a certain level and that indicates that we potentially could be in a new bull market. Uh, uh, what's the percentage that you're looking for off of the bottom? Yeah. Well, there's, um, I would say if I, if I put the lens of uh, someone who has to put money to work today, in their minds, they probably have three contemporary sell-offs that they think about, 1987, Mm -hmm. 2002 and then 2008, 2009. So those are the three, because most of us would have been, uh, you know, trading or familiar with those three periods. And three of three times, the market fooled you. It had a retest. So the question is, how much of a bounce do you need to have so that you know that we've cleared levels that in the past three crashes were just traps and then you got killed again? Yeah. And in, um, in, two, in 1987 and in 02, the market retraced a third of its decline. Okay, so it fell, and then one third of the points lost was recovered, but okay. then it was deflected and it, you had a new low. Yep. And in 2008, if you look at the best retracement rally that was ever staged in that period of time, it was a 24% retrace. So, uh, which is Fibonacci. Uh, actually, right. I think both of those were Fibonacci levels. And, and then you were, you were repelled. And then, of course, we, saw, we took five more months to March 09 lows. The good news is 24.75 was a 25% retrace, and 2,600 was a 33% retrace. 
The S&P closed at 27.49. So I think we've cleared what you normally would have said were levels that deflected past rallies, which became interim bottoms instead. But the, the most conclusive level that we wrote about um, is a 50% recovery of the losses, which is 2793, but let's say 2800 for simplicity. That's gonna be the key level. We're really close to that. But I think the minute we close above that, we're definitively into a bull market because that 50% retracement didn't happen until well into bull markets of 03, 1988, and in 2009. So I think, you know, we're really close. And I think people think that this decline was fast, but the recovery will take forever. Our, our thesis from the beginning is, and we've written about this really uh, for, for more than a decade, because we wrote about this in 09, that the speed of a decline determines how fast a stock, how, how fast the index recovers. So the faster you fall, the faster you recover. And so we think you're going to end up with, you know, potentially new highs before the end of the year. Wow. And, and, and so you're, you're, you're thinking a V-shape recovery more than kind of bounce off the bottom for, for a while to bring in that confidence. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's, so if you were to make, uh, draw some just simplified lines between a market top, a market bottom, mm -hmm. and then a 50% retrace and then an ultimate recovery, and you took 90 years of history, there's so much symmetry. So if you fell over X months to peak to the low, to recover half of those losses typically takes half the time. And to recover all the losses takes two and a half amount of the time. We fell over six weeks. So this would say mechanically, based on the last 10 drawdowns of over 30% over the last 95 years, 2,800 by mid-April. It looks like that's going to happen. I know, and I know it sounds insane when, yeah. when someone says it, but it looks like what's going to happen. But it also means new highs sometime before the third quarter. And again, that sounds insane as well. Uh, yeah, it, it does sound insane, but Definitely people at IBD have been following the system for a while and the way we look at it, we know not to predict in the markets and the markets are going to do what they want to do exactly. and anything can happen right. in the markets. That's right. right. We, yes, that's my, that's a painful lesson I've learned many times. I can never tell the market what to do. <laughs> exactly. No matter how smart you are, the yeah. market's going to do. No matter how do. much I yell at the screen, it's <laughs> never going to care what I have to say. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, and, and really, even this decline, no one imagined it was going to fall this far. But, you know, you, yeah. you, you have to have some kind of exit strategy, some kind of risk management to, to accommodate all different types of environments. That's right. And, you know, for those who aren't tactical, I might say that trying to time it now, okay, again, some of your readers are really skilled, and I think you guys have a really proven system because I know even in my days at uh, J.P. Morgan, there was a number of folks that like to cite your stats, but if you don't time well, lightning quick declines and lightning quick recoveries are not something anyone should be trading. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. You have to have... It has to work well for you, right? That that has to be part right. of your personality and things like that. Now, you're you're uh, you have tons of clients out there. Uh, talk about a little bit about the personalities that you you've had to adapt your strategy or, or just your research to. Yeah. Um, well, I would say uh, you know everyone's style has evolved. Uh, I started research in 1993, so it's been 28 years um, following markets. And people used to really be 
talking about short term as a year. And so their idea of trading was anything that involved less than 12 months of decision-making. But because of technology and information and the drop in trading friction costs, yeah. today, uh, the long-term is a quarter or two quarters. The, the world is trading in shorter horizons using smaller fractals. And the challenge, of course, is that machines can do better than humans this, and as you start to get shorter timeframes. Yeah, and, so and I that, oh, oh, go, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'd say that the challenge is really that, you know, you if anyone's trying to outsmart the market in the short term, that's becoming increasingly difficult because everyone's focused on that time frame. I, I agree. And also, really, over the last 10 years, the algos have added yet another variable where it's amazing how sometimes these markets can kind of keep going up a lot longer. It's very mechanical and then also keep going down in a very mechanical way too. Yes, that's right. So let's talk about a few reasons why the market uh, could be coming out of this uh, bear market faster than expected. You know, walk, you, you, had a, you had a few really good reasons. Walk us through um, uh, some of those. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I, I, again, I think you said something really important which is, you know, the market will tell us what's happening because we don't know um, the future. And uh, our work, you know, does try to understand today based on history and statistical analysis, but at the end of the day, we don't know the future. So we can guess, you know, so let's say, hey, the market makes a V-shaped recovery, new highs this year, it's inconceivable. And a few weeks ago, nobody believed it. I think now as the market has retraced, almost half the declines, maybe more, are starting to wonder. And I think a few things will explain the, the reasons it could happen. The first is, I think it's on, on the healthcare side, that there is a good chance that the crisis ends sooner with a lot less mortality. And time is really important because the longer we're locked down, you know, the more damage is done the more that there's ping pong and second order, third order, fourth, fifth order effects. The second possibility is that the US consumer who's been completely frozen is a lot more resilient than we expected. And, I, and we, we're gonna start writing about this because we've been studying it. You know, there's two ways to think about it. One is that the, 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 the businesses that were shut down can come back very quickly. I think that's 100% the fact because remember, business startups require capital, which they'll have access to, space and legal agreements in place, which they have, right. property and equipment, which they have, and workers, but they had to all shut down. I think restarting this will actually be pretty quick. The consumer could also be massively resilient. I, I think social distance and the idea that we can't re-engage, it's very difficult because people are afraid of other people. But if there's a healthcare solution, we lose the fear. And I think people are just going to be celebrating life once the crisis is mostly over. And then there's two other things that people have to remember. Number one, the policymakers acted so quickly. This is why anyone trying to make an analogy that we have to go deeper is basically arguing that policymakers can't change an outcome. And we know that's wrong because look, you can't fight the Fed, the, the central banks control the business cycle. Well, they are going beyond galactic tools. So this is a big deal. And then lastly, I just think people forget there's a ton of money 
uh, on the sidelines. And you know what? People weren't that bullish at the top. Um, so it's not like 3,400 was priced for perfection, you know? So there's a lot of reasons. That's great. So the market is back in an uptrend. So it's okay to buy some stock, but remember, let the market slowly pull you in and prove you right. Let's take a quick break, but when we return, we are gonna talk about being long-term greedy. Stay tuned. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all of these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot list, right, which is very popular. It's going to show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. Tom Lee is our guest on Investing with IVD, sponsored by Market Smith. Okay, Tom, let's talk about this concept of being long-term greedy. Yep. Um, you know, I think long-term greedy is a good life lesson as well as financial markets lesson. I think it's something I've learned uh, painfully over my career. But what it means is whatever decision you make, it shouldn't be to optimize your gains in the short term, but it's really to compound your gains for the long term. And, you know, one, that's common sense. Um, you know, Albert Einstein said this, the seventh wonder of the world is compounded interest. So it's to, to realize if you could make 10% a year for 10 years, that's way better than making 50% uh, in the month, but the risk of losing it. Right. But what it really means, like, because I'm being really general, um, is whatever you do in terms of investing or your career, don't do a decision because it feels good in the short term. You have to buy stocks because you're, you're buying real companies and they're being mispriced. That's how you make big money. I mean, that's the only way you would have bought Facebook and Google early because you understood their importance, not because they were going to crush the quarter, but because they're really important drivers. And in fact, I'll give you some examples. If you go back to 2000 and in 1997 and, and you were 20 years old and you loved internet companies and your parents just told you to buy the index instead, but you had so much belief in the internet, you could have bought a basket of 100 internet stocks in 2000. And 96% of them would have gone to zero, but the winning companies would have actually compounded to a total gain of 20 times your money. 
Oh my God, the S&P in that same period of time was only four times. So just getting that secular trend right paid off way more. So I think that's long-term greedy, right? That you're buying an internet company because you know it's going to be a really important group. And, and that's how you make your big gains. Yeah. Now, one of the, the, one of the things that investors, you know, the, the motions that they face is once they start working pretty well, it's starting, you know, the money's starting to burn a hole in your pocket, right? You, you're fear, you start to fear that you could lose that money. How, uh, what are some good ways to manage those emotions? Yeah. Um, you're right. I mean, cause the reality is that if you invest in 10 year cycles, uh, you know, half your companies will be worthless. Um, I mean, since 1974, for instance, over 90% of publicly listed stocks, which is over 40,000 securities, fell 95%. So the reality is that your winners over the long term are the ones that power your returns. Right. And you're right. At, at, you know, year five or year three, you could have outsized positions. There's plenty of ways to manage that and even generate derivative income through call protection. I don't recommend it uh, because that's not really our strategy, yeah. but they're very effective and it's, it's a lot of ways to raise money and protect your risk. And what about position sizing, things like that? Do you have like a, a core amount of positions that you like to try to, to ride this? Is it a hundred like in a, in a basket or is it a little bit less than that? Yeah. Well, you know, rebalancing is tricky. Um, you know, I think I know people prefer to rebalance quarterly. Um, and I think that makes sense for pensions and endowments. I, I think individuals should rebalance less frequently and they should be opportunistic. Um, I mean, a, an example of that is, is and I, I, I hate to cite it, but it's it, it even is even asset classes, like for instance, uh, you know, Bitcoin's an example where you don't really want to rebalance your holdings, um, but just put 1% because, you know, last year, a 1% position in Bitcoin uh, added almost 10 percentage points to your portfolio. Wow. Right. And, uh, oh, sorry, that's over three years. But yes, yeah, so what's, and even this year, Bitcoin actually adding meaningfully because, you know, markets are down double digits and Bitcoin's up. So the reality is you don't, there's some things where you want to make small allocations and then just let it pretend it was the original allocation. It was only 1% in your life, even if yeah. it's gotten bigger. Yeah, and and so let's talk about Bitcoin because because you've been a, a, a pretty big proponent of Bitcoin for for a while now. Uh, it, go over a, a few of those reasons why why that that's an asset class that listeners should uh, consider. Yeah, I mean Bitcoin's. Um, I mean, think about it. Bitcoin is uh, was originally sort of founded as uh, the idea of a form of digital money that couldn't be seized. Right. Um, but it was also uh, essentially immutable or, you know, had a, a lot of protection against interference and double spending. And uh, a, uh, its relevance is much greater um, more than ever. You know, Bitcoin actually has a security model built on proof of work. But in 10 years and multiple trillions, maybe tens of trillions of dollars of recorded transactions, there has never been a single fraudulent entry on the blockchain. I mean, so it's still the only form of digital money that's never been fraudulently created or double spent. And, you know, uh, in a world where financial crises take place and the potential for governments to raise taxes or seize assets, 
um, or control capital, and that could happen in other countries, you know, owning some Bitcoin makes a lot of sense because it's a digital form of assets and it's much easier to move around than bars of gold or art, which can be seized. Right. So, um, and then, you know, I know people have debated how you derive value from it. Like, you know, how do you value it? But I think the best way to think of crypto is it's a network value asset, no different than the dollar, no different than basically every company. I mean, you know, Airbnb, Yahoo, Google, they're all network value companies. And the more people who have Bitcoin and use it, the more valuable it becomes. And, you know, good news is Bitcoin's demand has actually increased this year. So it's really proven itself as a, as a macro hedge. And, and you mentioned another potentially really long-term trend, a huge disruptor, blockchain. Talk a little bit about that, because that could really disrupt many industries. Yeah. I mean, blockchain is a big deal. I mean, blockchain at the core is essentially the idea that a database isn't centrally managed, but there are uh, other nodes or people have a consensus way to determine whether the information on that is valid, right? That's essentially what a blockchain is. So um, instead of one company having a clouding saying that we have all the information, you let other essentially nodes determine how information changes. That's a big deal. Um, in health, it's a huge deal because like, let's say post-pandemic, you want to validate if someone has or has not the immunity or something. Well, you need, how do you prove who's, who someone is? Well, if you use the blockchain and we all have our own private key and, and you show your public key, which is how you know, these databases allow access, we can prove that we are the one out of the 7 billion people in the world and we can prove it without having to share any personal information. So it's a way to protect us, but also to secure our identity. And then you record our immunity. No one will be able to write a fraudulent entry on that. No one can right. fake it because it's been validated. So blockchain, think of it as really databases that are shared and you can work with existing databases with blockchain. So blockchain doesn't mean you have to like rip out all your, you know, all your existing databases. It's just a really a way to store information. That's excellent. Thanks, Tom. So being long-term greedy and having the patience, it's going to help you for the longer term if you truly respect the trend. Remember to compound your gains for the long term. So coming up next, Tom and I will talk about three ideas. We'll be back. I'm here with Scott St. Clair, and Scott is one of the senior product coaches at Market Smith. Now, Scott, we've both been doing this for a long time, and we know that investment research takes a lot of time. There's so many factors that you want to look into to try to figure out that whether this is a stock to buy or not. Quarterly earnings, huge sales growth. Hey, are institutions buying it? The list goes on and on. Yeah, it's a common question. I hear it all the time. I don't have time to, to do this work. So you don't have to spend that much time. If you have a tool like Marcus Smith, we do a lot of that work for you. Right there on the chart, earnings, sales, group strength, institutional sponsorship, like you just mentioned. Right. It's all there in the chart. So it allows you to make a decision much easier. Yeah, and the beauty is that we have in-house analysts 
that go through the SEC filings, they pull out those numbers, and they put it right on the markets chart, and all you have to do is analyze them. Yeah, I couldn't imagine having to go to the SEC website and look at the income statement, et cetera. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, and, and, and that would take hours and hours, and in that time, you can go through hundreds of stocks and find the best ones. So don't miss out on a big winner because you don't have enough time to research it. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. We are back with Tom Lee on investing with IVD sponsored by Marcus Smith. Okay, Tom, so let's talk about a few trends that you want to keep an eye on if this bull market gets stronger and stronger. And let, let's go over the first question that you've been asked a lot and everyone's asking this. Uh, should you focus more on stocks that are benefiting from the social distancing or just quality of stocks? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the key question. Um, because I think there's two questions people have in their minds. One is, you know, is this October 08? So it's not the real low. We have five more months and stocks will go down. And second, you know, are we, is the economy frozen? And if it's frozen, you want to be overweight, the work from home. But if it's restarting, you want to buy the epicenter of this social distance crash. Um, we've been recommending to our clients to use 2008-2009 as an, an analogy. And the reason that's important is that in October 08, the stock market still had 20% more downside. The stocks that crashed into October 08 started to outperform through March 09. In other words, you want to buy what's burning right now. And so we think you want to buy the victims of social distance. So that means quality companies that will come out stronger. So for instance, uh, one of the worst hit sectors are casinos mm -hmm. and hotels. There's a lot of quality investment grade, really well-run casinos out there. Uh, a lot of home furnishing stocks got obliterated. And, uh, you know, some examples that I know our clients are looking at are, are things like mattress companies, uh, you know, with high, you know, with high quality, high market share mattress companies are coming back. And it's also things that what I would call victims of social distance, but they didn't do anything wrong. And that would be things like airlines or some of the industrials because when, when, when this recovery takes place, policymakers aren't going to try to, they're not going to try to punish these companies. And that's a huge deal because that means that capital can flow to the shareholders. Yeah. And, and I think one of the key words you said is quality, because when, when you get in a crash, when you get in a panic, everything's going to go down. But the, the best stocks, they're still great companies. They're just more a victim of the social distancing or the panic. Cool. Yes, that's right. Because the weak companies probably went into terminal weakness because of this. And you don't really want to be involved with the weak. Right. So so, for instance, like the casinos, it, it makes sense that they would bounce back pretty quickly. But in playing devil's advocate here, it, it could take a while just psychologically for people to get comfortable going into a karate casino again, using the yeah. slot machines that everyone's touching, all, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, do you take any of those things into, into account also? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that every time, remember in 08, people made some 
adamant changes that people would be permanent in terms of how they changed and almost none stuck. I don't know if you guys remember, people were saying auto sales would never come back above 13 million star. And then within a couple of years, we were almost back at 20. And, and so I, I think what we have to remember is, you know, the average human likes to interact. They like excitement. They like to be engaged. They like experiences. These are going to come back and, and, and only government mandate would make it slow, but that's why healthcare solutions are wearing masks or people washing hands. You know, those will be big solutions. Right. And, and so same thing with just the traveling and things like that. It could just take a little while for everyone to get used to it, but the market's always looking out ahead. And so it, it could project, Hey, you know what, in another quarter or two, things are going to be back to normal. These great quality companies could be right up and running again. That's right. And stocks always recover to their original level one year before GDP recovers to the same level. That's, so we that's, could be at new highs and yeah. GDP is still way behind. Because of a huge, huge lag, right? And, once, yeah, and, yeah. and 2008 was another great example. Or 2009, once the market started taking off, it was only really a year later or maybe six months later where you started seeing great economic numbers start coming in again. That's right. I mean, in, in 08, from 3Q08, so let's say October 8 to the final low, the, the economy didn't get back to the October 08 levels for almost two years. The stock market got there by September 09. That's incredible. So, uh, so we have casinos, you have airlines. What about like the cruise lines? What, what, what about those guys? Uh, they, they are definitely in the epicenter of this yeah. whole thing. I, I think the cruise lines, you know, it's, it's, it's really an interesting question because in some ways they may end up being the banks in this crisis. You know, in other words, the ones people are pointing fingers at, because I know in Australia, for instance, 37% of the cases for that country are cruise passengers. Wow. And so as long as the cruise industry didn't mislead their customers about the risks, um, then they're probably unfortunate, you know, they'll be fine. But if they were if they were employing tactics that were trying to get people to use cruises, even though there was risk, and I don't have the answer to that, then the industry could be in huge trouble. So I I don't know. I mean, I would rather buy, you know, a casino or even a quality restaurant name, which got hit just as hard, um, because you know there's less of the zeroing out of the value of the asset. Okay. And, and when buying these slowly scale in or you're, you're making big bets now, or you're just kind of spreading out to let time do the work for you more than anything else? Well, yeah, there's a, there's already been a big move, you know? Right. So, um, so it would be tough for people to go to 100% uh, percent allocation. And, you know, we know there's waves of bad news coming. So I just think you can always be a slow buyer or a patient buyer now. That's perfect. So there are a number of ideas that are worth adding to your watch list. Thanks, Tom, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week on Investing with IBD. Next week, we are going to have Eve Bobak. She is a portfolio manager and market strategist for Ropel Capital Management. So that's it. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to Investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. 
And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.